0: Welcome to the Live Your Purpose podcast, featuring compelling interviews with big-hearted people in the Oklahoma City metro area who are leading, creating, and innovating on purpose. Get inspired by conversations with passionate difference makers from our local community. I'm your host, Charles Gossett, Life Purpose Coach and founder of Full Integration Coaching. On today's episode, we sit down with Thomas Hill, a self-described addict leader with a passion for making a difference in the lives of those he serves, and for inspiring transformational change in leaders and corporate culture. And now, the Live Your Purpose podcast. Welcome to this edition of the Live Your Purpose podcast. My guest today is Thomas Hill III, who serves as CEO of Kimray a leading manufacturer of valves and controls for oil and gas production. His grandfather, Garmin Kimmel, founded the company in 1948. Today, it employs more than 500 people at its production facility in Oklahoma City and store locations throughout the US. Having grown up in the company, Thomas has worked in virtually every department, giving him an intimate knowledge of the people and processes from start to finish. Thomas is also a self-described addict leader who hit rock bottom and had to find a new way to live and work. He's the author of the book, Recovering Leadership, Musings of an Addict Leader, in which he shares his own story of success, failure, and lessons learned in recovery. You can read and subscribe to his Monday Musings on Life and Leadership at RecoveringLeadership.com. Thomas, welcome to the show. Charles, thank you so
1: much for having me. I'm very honored to be here.
0: Well, it's good to finally meet virtually uh, in person in the times of COVID. Here we are uh, doing a a Zoom podcast session, but uh, we're getting to see one another for really the first time. And I would found out about you and and your work around leadership through a mutual friend, David Lee Anderson, a local Oklahoma City artist who's done some work for Kim Ray. And uh, I'm just really excited to be able to sit down with you today.
1: Well, thank you. I'm, I think it's interesting the the way that people get connected, and uh, I am an engineer by education and run a company, but I have a great passion for art. And uh, Kimberly collects a lot of art. I collect art, and we love investing in the local art community. So we predominantly either buy or commission art from local artists because I figure if you're going to spend money on art, you should spend it where it's actually helping artists that are creating art to, to live and work. So that's fantastic that we have that connection.
0: I love that. And, and a couple of his uh, actually three of his works are on my wall in my office right here. Uh, so yeah, well, really good as you may know, Thomas, we start each episode off with a kickoff question and you've chosen yours. So I'll just uh, tee that up for you and see where the conversation takes us. Great. Okay. So Thomas, when did you know that you wanted to be doing what you're doing today?
1: Well, I love that 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 question was on the list that I got to pick from because um, unlike a lot of people, including my kids, I have six children and I was a little frustrated that most of them uh, were in college or are headed towards college and still are not entirely sure what they want to do with their lives, which is fine. But I have known since uh, very early what I wanted to do and what I wanted to be. In fact, uh, certainly by first grade, I knew that I wanted to be an engineer, And I wanted to grow up to run Kimray. I didn't know exactly what it meant to run Kimray but I knew that that's what I wanted to to do. Now I have to confess that in kindergarten I wanted to be a fireman because they brought the fire truck to kindergarten and we get to sit in the seat and you know do the siren and the horn and they had a dog. I know that not a lot of them have anymore but I'm old enough that they had a Dalmatian and I think everybody wanted to be a fireman in in my kindergarten class. But shortly after that, I realized that I wanted to be basically I wanted to be like my grandfather and my father and do the things that they did and never wavered. I was uh, very, very interested in engineering throughout school, went to Oklahoma State, got an engineering degree and literally came back to Cameron and started working as as an engineer and then worked my way up from there. So I've always known, always known what I wanted to do
0: yeah that's awesome and so for our listeners because i do invite our listeners to kind of reflect about their own experience um and knowing from a very early age can be a real blessing it can it can add some uh, sense of direction and of course this is the live your purpose podcast so it can certainly add a sense of, of purpose and meaning to your life in those early years for for those who may be resonating you know what i i had that experience too in my early years What did it do for you? Looking back now, what did it do for you, in terms of like your engagement with school? For example, you knew that you wanted to pursue engineering. How did that track uh, sort of happen for you from that initial, you know, I want to I want to lead Kimray someday?
1: Yes, certainly, Charles. Um, I, I think where I would start to answer that question, you know, there's a considerable amount of maybe argument, certainly discussion about the difference between what we are kind of suited to do, maybe built to do versus what we're taught to do. The, the nature versus nurture type of argument of a, a dear friend who uh, believes that most of us, if not all of us, are born with fundamentally the same brain. And then because of events and the things that happen to us, uh, we we drift in a direction and then we continue to you know, redo that, kind of go over the same ground over and over, which makes us more suited to that. So he would claim that nobody's born to do math or born to do art or music, that we kind of learn that. I I tend to disagree with him. I I, I took to engineering type things, math and sciences and problem solving, very, very early. Now, He would argue, I was surrounded by engineers. My father's an engineer, my grandfather's an engineer. I grew up in this family where we fixed everything. We solved problems, we built things. I thought everybody did that. I thought everybody, when their toaster broke, you dismantle it, you find the broken part, you engineer a better part so it won't break again. You make it in your own machine shop. Doesn't everybody have a machine shop in their garage? And then, you know, you put the toaster back together. I thought that was the way the world worked. It turns out it's not. And so, it was probably both for me but going through school, uh, it it gave me something to kind of focus on um, which I think was really good. I was a nerd in school and it wasn't just because I liked engineering. I was just socially awkward. I wasn't cool like I am now and so um, that was probably the best thing that it did for me is it, it kind of gave me something to do. I was very into computers, very into mechanical engineering and Uh, just got into a lot of hobbies, did a lot of things on my own uh, instead of the social things that I was not so good at. And that's probably a blessing and a curse, but um, very definitely gave me a significant kind of direction, kind of the guiding light for my education. Um, I've watched my children and uh, they're a little less certain about what they want to do. Uh, But what has turned out is is as they get close to the decision-making times, they 've picked something I mean that you know they've they've done what they needed to do, so I would encourage your listeners, regardless of whether that was their experience or not, um, basically deciding where we want to be next uh, if we're if we're talking about living our purpose, uh, having a goal or having a vision, a personal vision, I think is important, whether you're two 10 years old or fifty years old. And so anybody can do that, right? Anybody can say, hey, I need, I'm going to develop a personal vision. I'm going, to, I'm going to go after that or seek that. So that, that would be my encouragement is wherever you are in life, uh, think about what you want. And then that that gives you the focus to do that.
0: It sure does. And I love that you shared that. Thanks for going there. Um, you know, um, whether or not folks have that, those early premonitions almost of, of what they want to become in the future, Uh, I know because I don't think they're going to listen to this. You know, our daughters from a very early age, one of them still loves to love to dance from the age of four. And I'm telling you uh, from my view, anyway, uh, that is her identity. If she has identity, it's identity as dancer. She is the dance of life. And, uh, and she, you know, is great at science and math and other things as well, but that's where her passion is. That's where her interest is. That's, She always has more energy uh, after she dances than she did before, no matter how much she dances. Whereas our, our other daughter, uh, she was writing little storybooks, you know, just naturally. She wasn't guided to do that, but from a very early age, about five, she would just all of a sudden have this storybook and come out and read it to us, putting on plays and imagining relationships. So these were early, you were talking about nature versus nurture. I'm like, well, that seemed to be in the package that she came with, but she may have picked up on it some other way.
1: <laughs> so, Absolutely.
0: Uh, yeah. I'm kind of with you on that. Well, very good. Well, we can take this, Thomas, any direction we want to, but I did want to dive into uh, more of your own journey as you uh, yeah. entered Yeah. Entered Kim Ray, but you can pick up on any thread you'd like to and just tease that out.
1: Well, it, I find it interesting that, that kind of whether it was orchestrated or not, we kind of started with the beginning because um, while... Being around engineers and, and seeing that is probably had a lot to do with why I wanted to do what I wanted to do. There was another side to my childhood um, that, that didn't work out very well with, for me. And that was, uh, it was raised around and, and by uh, these people who, you know, were very successful, very accomplished. My grandfather started his own company in 1948. Uh, pioneered the products that we still sell today, 44 plus patents to his name, was involved in everything. Uh, And a lot of people don't realize, we're in oil and gas, a lot of people don't realize that my grandfather and my father were instrumental in developing open heart surgery here in Oklahoma. My grandfather worked with the doctors to develop the equipment they needed. Uh, Back in those days, they literally bypassed your heart. So they took your blood out of your body, pumped it with an external pump, put it through an oxygenator, then put it through a debubbler and then put it back in your body. That equipment, the pump and the oxygenator and the bubbler and the triple temperature water bath, my grandfather helped the doctors by developing that equipment and then we manufactured it. And then my father went on to invent the first cardiac output computer, which in those days was an analog computer and had several patents associated with that. And so you, I mean, you kind of get the caliber of men that I was around. And even my other grandfather who was a blue collar worker was one of those guys that could fix anything, make anything, had acres full of garden, you know, just was a really, you know, hands-on guy. So I grew up around these men and, and women, my grandmothers and my mother were also very accomplished who uh, really just nothing seemed out of reach for them. They did anything that they set their minds to on top of that. Uh, you know, my grandfather, and my father were both fairly authoritarian. They were type A. My dad's a Marine, and you can imagine. And so what I saw, not what they told me, these, these were not messages that I was given. They were messages that I received as I interpreted the world that I saw when I was a young boy. What I saw was that men were, uh, you know, they were always correct. They always had a solution. They always knew what they were doing. They were never afraid or uncertain. They were never emotional. And so that was that became my image of what it meant to be a man and be successful. And so I started internalizing that message. And then on top of that, they were again very accomplished. And that led to them being, you know, sought after. People wanted Garmin's advice and his opinion and his help on projects. And they wanted my father's advice. And they wanted them on boards. And they wanted, and that looked to me like worth that looked like value, right? That's what made them valuable. And so I combined the message that to be a man, I had to be certain and and know everything and have all the solutions and never be afraid with to have value. I had to accomplish things. Accomplishment equal value. What I did would be my self-worth or my value. And the problem is, is that I am firstborn type A, obsessive compulsive. I don't sleep much. And so guess what? I'm really good at accomplishing things. I mean, that's kind of how I'm built. And and so early on, I I did well. I did well in school. I built things. I got in a lot of trouble for doing things that you shouldn't do when you're 10 years old. I started making fireworks, my own fireworks when I was 10 years old and almost blew up the house. And, you know, lots and lots of interesting but dangerous stories. But the things that I accomplished got me a lot of accolades. In my family, you got patted on the back for making an A. You got patted on the back for winning a science fair, you know, and, and that felt good, right? Made me feel good. So, those things combined kind of created my belief system when I was young, and then I carried that into the rest of my life. Unfortunately, both of those things are wrong, right? Our value is not associated with our accomplishment. And it is not true that men or any human being are always right, always certain, never afraid. The problem is that's what I believed and that's not what I felt, right? So as a young person, I was actually fairly uncertain. I was fairly afraid. Same emotions and same concerns and fears that every human being has but I thought it was wrong for me to have those things. And so that created shame, which is an emotional pain, plus the stress of if I'm going to be valuable, I've got to create, I've got to do something bigger tomorrow than I did today. What am I going to do? You know, what am I going to, what's my next accomplishment going to be? And that's a treadmill that I got on at a very early age and managed to keep up with until I was 48 years old. So throughout uh, throughout that time, I developed a lot of ways to cope with how I was feeling internally. Um, A lot of processes that made me feel better. Um, And again, I'm obsessive compulsive, so processes are great for me. And those became addictions for me. an, An addiction is really anything that you're using to medicate or replace something you need that isn't really the solution to your problem. And the problem is the way our brains work, that may work the first time, and then the next time you need more. It's, drugs are that way, alcohol is that way, sex, gambling, processes, doing. It doesn't matter what it is. We're trying to fill a hole that, the, that what we're using isn't the thing to fill the hole with. And so the, the definition of an addiction is it's just something that keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. It, had, it takes on a life of its own. I did fine for years and years, but by the time I was 48 years old, I couldn't keep up with the treadmill anymore. Charles, I know you've seen and I'm sure your your listeners have seen the videos that people post of them doing stupid things on treadmills, right? And when you trip on a treadmill, what happens? You know, you go off the back and for some reason all of those same idiots have those treadmills up close to a wall or something or a breakable, you know, glass table. I don't know why but that seems to be the case. So that's a great mental picture because literally in my life, that's what happened. I'm on this treadmill I'm trying to run faster and faster and faster and do more and do more and keep up with this need to feel normal and to be okay. And eventually you can't. And, you, it, and all you have to do is slip and then bam, you're on the treadmill and it slammed into the wall behind you. So on a Friday morning, actually May 25th of 2012, I was called into uh, the office by my father, who was still chairman of the board. He had retired from Kimray and, and I was currently managing Kimray and I was fired. I was removed as president of Kimray, removed from the board, and uh, and that led to a, basically a complete breakdown on my part, and um, ended up in a therapist office later that morning. And uh, eight plus hours later, about half of the way through that, called my he got me to call my wife and let her know how bad things were. Um, you know, finally my behaviors had gotten to the point where I couldn't cover them up anymore. I wasn't going to work and I wasn't doing the things that I was supposed to be doing. And, and I was doing a whole bunch of other stuff. And, um, and so at the end of all of that, because of kind of the position I was in and the frame of mind I was in, uh, the decision was made that I needed to go to rehab, needed to be somewhere. And so by about 8.30 that night, I had checked into an inpatient facility in Texas. And I spent the next 67 days in rehab dealing with process addiction and codependency and all of the stuff that I had covered throughout my life, instead of dealing with it and processing it, nobody had taught me how to do those things. I was just covering it up. I was putting in boxes and sticking in the shelf and then doing all these behaviors and things to, to kind of make it go away. And uh, so I had to go back and unpack all that stuff and, and deal with it. It was very difficult and uh, very traumatic. And um, I would never want to do that again. Uh, but it was exceptionally necessary, and now I kind of jokingly, but not really joking, I'm not actually joking, say I think everybody should go to rehab. I think it would be phenomenal for most people uh, because we're not equipped. Nobody, uh, in most of our cases, nobody told us how to deal with trauma and how to unpack the things, and so uh, these things happened to us, and I had a great childhood. I wasn't beaten or abused or, you know, somebody killed in front of me or anything. It's just the normal stuff that happens to us. We misunderstand the world around us. We misinterpret the, the signals we're giving and those things kind of collide in our in our emotions, and our psyche, and then we don't know what to do with that. And, and I was never taught how to do that. So, learned how to do that, went through rehab and, and uh, got a lot better and realized um, that my worth is not associated with my accomplishment, that my worth is intrinsic uh, and equal to everybody else's. I'm no better or no worse than everybody else, and, and that worth is intrinsic. It was there the day I was born, had nothing to do with my education, my accomplishments, you know, all the things that I've created, and, and I can't add to it, and I can't take away from it. That's very freeing. I mean, if you've spent your whole life thinking you have to create your worth by doing something, by being a certain way, or living up to a certain expectation that other people have, that's an, that's an enormous weight that people carry around, and unfortunately, our society um, does an exceptional job of reinforcing that because everywhere we look, we're told if you want to be valuable, you have to look this way or act this way or dress this way or have these things or, or whatever. So, we're, we're, that's reinforced over and over and over again. So, never thought I would come back to Kim Ray. Uh, my exit was, was fairly tragic and um, I, I kind of left a wake behind and I thought, okay, I've, I've completely screwed that up. So that's a whole nother thing that happened to me was my whole identity was tied up in being the president of Kim Ray. That's the only thing that I had ever wanted to do in my entire life. 48 years leading up to that was where I wanted to be. And so if I'm not that, then what am I? I mean, do I even exist? And so I had to deal with that. I had to process that. It's it's actually a grieving process. I had to actually grieve the death of that identity, that vision for myself. And actually started another company and, and I would have been very, very happy doing that. Um, I, had, I had overcome a lot of that, uh, the, a lot of the things that, that had led to that and, and was actually doing very well and, and I was very healthy. And, uh, and then Kimry called and they said, hey, we'd like to talk to you about coming back. Now, can you imagine you have spent your whole life uh, trying to achieve something, you get there, that's the only thing you've ever wanted and then that rug gets yanked out from underneath you which is not actually a very good analogy because I, I I cliff dove off of that one. I mean, nobody pulled anything out from under me. I, I did that all by myself, but I lost that. You would think if it was offered back to me, I would go, yes, yes, I'll be in in 15 minutes. I mean, are you ready to meet? But that wasn't the case, again, because of the the work I was capable, uh, was allowed to do and, and helped to do in, in rehab. And then I stayed in therapy. In fact, I'm still in therapy. So, most of your re- listeners can't probably go to rehab. I understand that. They all need therapists. So everybody needs to go find themselves a good therapist. Everybody should be in therapy. But had done the work and realized that things, there were certain things that had to be true wherever I was going to be for it to be a healthy place for me. And I was concerned that maybe Chemray wouldn't be a healthy place. So I told the board that I would be willing to talk. But they needed to understand that I kind of had a list of, almost a list of demands that had to be true if I was gonna come back. And so we sat down over a couple of different meetings and turns out they had fixed most of the things that would have been problematic for me. Uh, and, and it was possible for me to come back. And so I did, I got to come back about a year after I left. I got to come back to Kim Ray. They rehired me as the vice president of manufacturing, which is a job I had held about 15 years before and I was reporting to a guy I hired while I was the president of Kimray, which is a humbling experience. Which is also very awesome because I think a lot of leaders um, could stand to have more humility, and so that was a great opportunity for me to uh, to experience that. And it was a great opportunity for me to see if I was ready to be in that leadership role, be in a leadership role back in the same kind of digs and environments that I had been in before. And that went well, and so uh, it wasn't very long after that um, that, that my father uh, wanted to re-retire, and the board kicked around whether or not it was a good idea to put me back in as now CEO, and it took him a couple of months to make that decision, which I'm actually very glad that they took it as seriously as they did, and, and they were as concerned for my health and well-being as they were Kim Ray's, but they put me back in as CEO the, the critical part of this story, Charles, for, uh, you know, for me, in addition to the, the personal stuff that, that occurred, was the change that occurred then in my leadership. Because before, my belief system about where my value came from, well, think about it, Charles, if I believed that my value was based on my accomplishment, what would I have thought about your value, Charles?
0: Same. You're likely yeah, to I would, believe yeah. the same thing about it. Exactly. You.
1: You're worth what you create. Now, yeah. second question, which is actually more important. Do you think I ever believed that you created as much value as I created?
0: Well, if you did, it may not be in the same way. So it's likely to be judged against your own internal yes, measures. Exactly.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And so um, I, as a leader, unknowingly, unintentionally, it wasn't malicious on my part, but I functionally devalued everybody around me. And when we make value something that you have to compete for, for me to be more valuable, you have to be less valuable. So that becomes a competition. There's a scarcity mentality mm-hmm. about value. That's a very toxic environment to, to live and work in. And so I had created that environment for my leadership. Now, the guy on the shop floor running the machine probably didn't, didn't feel that as much, but it does leak down. I mean, the, the mess that you create at the top of an organization just kind of drip, drips down through the whole organization. And I say this a lot when I speak, the, the culture of an organization is an organic result of the belief system of the organization. And the belief system of the organization is predominantly influenced by the leadership. So if you want a different culture, you need different leaders. The, the really kind of miraculous thing is that at Kim Ray, they knew they needed a different leader, so they got rid of me. And then I became a different person because of rehab. And so I got to come back and be a different kind of leader. And so now at Kim Ray, Kim Ray was always a great place. And we took, we've we always taken good care of our 72 year history of just doing great things for the community and good values and, and solid principles that we operate the business on. And none of that had gone away. But my, under my leadership as an addict leader, as a sick person, I had created this this culture of competition for value and it's toxic and it causes infighting and it causes siloing and so that had begun to dissolve under the leadership of my father and the new board and when they brought me back in I had the opportunity to pick that up and continue moving forward and so now at Kim Ray value is something that everybody has because everybody does have it we didn't that that's not we're not making that up that's just the truth everybody has intrinsic and equal value we're not competing for value at Kim Ray so we're not competing with one another. We let our ideas compete and strategies can compete, but we can disconnect from our ideas. Our ideas are not our identities. They're not what give us our value. And it changes the entire culture, but it changes just the flavor of what it's like to work. And it, it produces a, an opportunity for people to be successful, not at someone else's expense, but when they're successful, all of us are successful. And so we celebrate great ideas. We celebrate successes. It doesn't matter where the idea comes from. It doesn't matter where the, the next thing comes from. Um, different departments help each other come up with new ideas because, again, nobody's nobody's being elevated or demoted because they did or didn't come up with with the next great thing. And that's just been fundamentally phenomenal. And so that leads me, am I talking too much, Charles? I mean, if you can jump in here and ask a question if you need to.
0: No, not at all. You you gave me
1: a mic and turned me loose. That's that's, a really dangerous thing to do.
0: I'm good with that. I love to listen. And this is is storytelling. And, um, you know, I'll just, You know keep up with where you were headed there please Thomas but I do want to reflect back a couple of things since I'm I have a microphone now so um similar in that way you know one of the the last things that you mentioned and you mentioned it previously was around the idea of identity Mm -hmm. and this intrinsic value that um that shifted for you that you found out that you had intrinsic value this changed your internal i'm intuitively suggesting this 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 challenged and changed your internal belief system and then you were able to uh, filter your external world through this new belief system i was curious in terms of your own identity when you were able to take on this new belief system that um, you yourself had intrinsic worth that is um, not dependent upon your accomplishments and achievements do you recall some of the conditions that you were in or some of the the things that really shifted that mindset for you
1: well um you know, kind of the turning point, although it's not, it's not like a momentary thing. I was in rehab for 67 days and, and, you know, every day is seven or eight hours of either group therapy or individual psychotherapy or, you know, 12 step meetings and those kind of things. So it's a ton of work, a ton of opportunity uh, to reflect and and to kind of unpack things. And uh, so a lot went on there that, that got me to that point. Um, But, but I'll tell you one, one, Rather short. So I'll try to make it a short story. A kind of a, a a very impactful point. Um, rehab is an interesting place. If you haven't been to rehab, um, you wouldn't necessarily know this, but you might imagine it's fairly restrictive. And that's a, an interesting transition to occur on Thursday. I'm the president of Kimray. I have you know, free reign, I can go anywhere I want, I can do anything I want, my calendar's my own, everybody around me will change what they're doing to match what I want done, you know, basically I'm, I'm in control, and and by Friday night, I'm in a place where I have to have, get permission to go to the bathroom, you know, they you get up when they tell you to, you go to bed when they tell you to, you eat when they tell you to, you go to meetings when they tell you to, and you're constricted into this small space, you can't leave the campus, and, and so that's a that's a shock. That's a system shock. And so by the end of the first week, um, if you you start out as level one, can't do anything. Level threes um, can drive, and there's a couple of times that they can leave campus. As a level one, the only way you can leave campus is as a, as if a level three vouches for you and takes you, and the only place you can go is church on Sunday morning. And so that doesn't happen very often for a one-week uh, level one. And the reason is, is if you screw up while you're off campus, the level three gets de-leveled because uh, it's part of learning how to take responsibility for other people. Addiction is a is an infinitely selfish lifestyle. And so they're teaching us to, to open up and to take responsibility for other people and to be part of a broader community. And so it's pretty unusual for a level three to take on a one week level one, because that's just a dangerous, risky proposition. But this guy named Jacob, who became a good friend of mine, Um, Said, hey, you want to go to church? And I said, hey, I would love to get out of this place for at least an hour. A, and B, they have coffee at church, and when you're in a rehab facility for substance abuse and process abuse, there's no substances. <laughs> you don't get coffee or sugar or anything else that would alter your mood, and so we were all very anxious to go get a cup of coffee. So, we go to church. We go a little early, so everyone can sit around and drink coffee, and I'm, I'm still shell shocked, right? I mean, my whole world has fallen apart, and I've been in rehab for a week, which is not enough time to even know which way is up, and so I'm just kind of sitting there you know, with day's look in my face. We go into the sanctuary, and I had gone to church my entire life, was raised in the church. I've taught adult Sunday school for 15 years prior to this. There's nothing about religion and Christianity in the Bible that I don't know. Head knowledge. I've got all this data, but my experience with religion had not had not really moved me. It was just something that I did. It was a component of, of the performance that I put on every week, with part of it was going to church. So I walk into this sanctuary. Uh, For local listeners, people in the Oklahoma City area, it's kind of like a life church. This place was very much had the vibe of a life church. The worship music starts, and the only way I can describe it is I, I was overcome. Something just literally overwhelmed me, and I have since identified that basically as grace. I mean, basically, I experienced God in a way that I had not before I, I'm sobbing. I'm crying. Everybody's singing. I'm crying. Jacob's patting me on the back going, hey, it's cool, dude. Let it go. Let it go. And, uh, and so I cried all through the worship. And that wasn't too bad because there's lots of people singing. And so nobody was really paying attention to me. Unfortunately, I continued to sob through the sermon. That was a little more embarrassing because people could actually tell that I'm in the back <laughs> sobbing. Jacob's still just telling me it's cool. But yeah, I don't remember what the guy said, but I do remember it felt like he was talking to me. and mm-hmm. And for the first time in my life, I actually not understood in my head, but understood kind of in my soul, in my emotions, in my psyche. I understood the, the grace of God and I understood that God valued me because he had created me. And and that was really the turning point. And then as we went through all of the therapy and I unpacked all the stuff that I had Misinterpreted and 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 believed that that wasn't true. That gave me the foundation then to come out of rehab with this kind of completely new ideology and belief system, um, that you know is is very much uh responsible for how i live my life today and the kind of leader i am today and quite frankly the fact that i'm still alive is is you know is directly really i could not have survived the way i was living That that ended badly um, it did end badly but it it would have ended badly no matter what i mean there, there was no place to go with that so
0: absolutely well thanks again for sharing that thomas because um i'm just imagining you're more comfortable sharing that level of vulnerability now and that level of honesty um, because you're lined up, you know, you're lined up with your values and, and are are sure of who you are today. And well, I can and tell you
1: as, oh, no, go ahead. It, well, and no offense to you or any yeah. of your listeners, but your all's opinion of me does not change my value. Right. <laughs> so I don't need to be appreciated. I don't need to be, you know, I don't need to be anything. And if I don't get to be the CEO of Kimry, that's fine. It's not, that's not who I am. It's what I do. And and I think it's what I'm supposed to be doing. i I think I'm called to do this, and, and I think this is the right thing for me to be doing, but someday it won't be, and that'll be completely fine. And I don't need, you know, that's the great thing is is that while I I want to be presentable, obviously, I want to I want to make Kim Ray proud of me. I don't want to do a disservice to the people that that I serve, but I don't need people's approval to feel like I'm worth something. And so I can be honest with people because, you know, most of the time, honesty begets honesty. Transparency begets tra- transparency. So when I am honest with people about who I am and what I've gone through, it's shocking to me how many people will come up to me after I speak and say, oh, man, you know, I went through some, you know, this and I you know, I did this and um, people will come up and tell me they've been in rehab and tell me how they're doing. And uh, so uh, it's it's actually a, a much better way. I. Where I was headed before we took that detour and 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 talked about you know kind of how I got to that that deal is a little bit more if if I can about kind of what has happened because of this and not only did I get an opportunity to come back and lead Kimray which you know is wonderful because I love this place I've spent my whole life here I grew up here it, you know it's my it's my family in a, in more ways than one uh, but it also gave me an opportunity to see this belief system play out in a community and in the culture of a community, and I became, uh, over the first uh, few years, became more and more convinced that this is the way that we should be doing life. This is the way that that organizations should be run, and very few of them are. Now, that doesn't mean that that everybody out there is doing malicious things. There are a lot of really well-intentioned leaders that are really just doing things the way they were taught and and they're just following in the footsteps of the people that were in front of them and trying to do the best they can. But because they don't understand how to lead uh, with this ideology and actually operate an organization in a way that demonstrates on a daily and in many ways way that we value the people that are around us, um, I started thinking this is something that's, that could be really cool. and the more I would speak, that would come up and people would ask questions about that. And I end up working with leaders. And as I work with leaders, I find that there are tons of leaders that are really struggling. Um, they wanted to be a leader. Many of them from when they were young, they, you know, they wanted to lead and then they get there and, It's not what they thought it was, and they're Mm -hmm. not okay. They're not doing well. It's it's eating their lives, you know, it's destroying them from the inside out. And they can't tell anybody, right? You can't tell when you're a leader, you can't say, I'm not okay. I'm, you know, I'm not fine. And so they're they're kind of trapped and and given the opportunity, you know. Again, if I'm transparent and they have an opportunity, then they come and they kind of confess to me, I'm not okay, and things are not, and I don't know what to do. And I thought, man, you know, if I'm running into these people as often as I am, that has to be a, a huge problem. And so I started talking to some of the people that I value their input, um, people that I that mentor me, and and about how I maybe could could be involved in this. And, and what came of that is, uh, uh, not quite a year ago, we started a foundation, uh, the Kimmel Foundation for Recovering Leadership, and and our entire goal, our entire purpose is to provide an opportunity, uh, whether that's a a situation or information or an experience, but to provide an opportunity for leaders to, to hear the message that there's a different way and to give them an opportunity to have transformation occur in their lives. Sometimes it just takes something to kick that off. And, and I would hope that for most people, it wouldn't be getting fired and going to rehab and having your whole life fall apart. We'd like to get to people before it's, it's at that point. but to But to tell the stories and to give opportunities for these things to happen, which would then cause them to move in a direction of transformation. And then the beauty is if leaders are transformed, then the organizations that they lead will be transformed. And think about what would happen if we had a wave of organizations, businesses, because remember, we spend a third of our waking hours at work, most of us at least a third of our waking hours. So it's a third of our life, right? People say work-life balance. I say there's no such thing. Work is life. It's a third of your life and you should be doing life there and it shouldn't be grinding you to powder and tearing you up and you have to go home and have a glass of wine and try to recoup so you can make it back and, and do it again tomorrow. What if we had a wave of organizations led by leaders who believe that everybody's intrinsically valuable, leading organizations in ways that were empowering and encouraging and uplifting for their people? Now we still have to do the work, right? And and sometimes the work is hard, but what if we weren't torn up at work? What if instead we were empowered at work? What would that do for families? What would that do for communities? What would that do for cities? What would that do for our nation? And as I look around, I don't have the solutions to all these problems, But I guarantee you, if all the people around us looked at everybody else and and really actually believed that everybody that they saw was intrinsically and equally valuable, if we weren't dividing ourselves up into little groups, which, by the way, whenever we differentiate ourselves and we say, I'm in this group and you're in that group, that inevitably leads to one group devaluing the other. And sometimes they both devalue each other, right? So we're constantly devaluing each other and devaluing the people around us. What if we didn't do that? Think about what that would lead to in terms of our ability to have discussions and dialogue about the things that are, that are plaguing our society. So we're not going to solve all the problems in the world, but one leader, one company at a time, what we intend to do with the Foundation for Recovering Leadership is hopefully um, foster support transformational change in leaders and therefore transformations in their organizations. And my only goal is that more people will get to live the life that I'm living and that the people that I'm serving with live. Because I tell people, if you're a leader, you will never live your best life until the people that you serve are living theirs. And you're responsible for that. You, to, to a great degree, you're responsible for making that possible. So that's what, we're, that's what we're doing with the foundation.
0: Yeah, and that's such exciting stuff, which really precipitated this interview. When I saw uh, social media that you posted about the Kimmel Foundation, I was like, okay, I, I want to find out more about this because it resonates with me personally personally. Um, just as the book, again, I'll, I'll drop these links in the show notes for folks, but the book, Recovering Leadership, uh, highly recommend folks, if you're interested in this conversation, go read the book, um, get on the website, uh, look at the Kimmel Foundation, a big word in, in my language as a person in long-term recovery from alcoholic addiction uh, and substance use disorder. You know, this is 14 years for me. And uh, when I was about- Thank you. You know, it's been, I've, I've led like three different lives and this is the best one so far. It seems the most honest. And, you know, when, when I was able to get to that point of accepting the truth of my life, the reality of my existence and the untruth of it, it was a whole lot easier to lean into what, what was real when I knew there was a different way. And so what I hear that you, anyone who's been through these transformative changes, uh, has similar language in their own style. You know, here's what it was like, here's what happened, here's what it's like now, like in the 12-step groups or in other places. And, and you know, we can't help but tell others about it because it's what people need. How many others are out there listening to this podcast that have, may have been inspired or intrigued? If you have, that's what, that's what the point of this podcast and why I'm excited about um, what you're up to. I work with a lot of leaders myself, And I'm telling you, it can be isolating. You can get stuck in patterns. You can get, uh, you know, just drained of your energy and and you could be living someone else's life entirely and not even know it because we can't self-check well enough. Exactly. So having a community like this, having this type of conversation so honestly, it's a lot easier once we accept the truth and we lean into it. You know, it doesn't take as much Courage, as it certainly does, on the front end, and that's where uh, your work can help encourage other people. I love that you what you're up to. In, in our last minute or two, please feel free to take the mic and, and tell us anything, some parting words, closing words well, you might have for us.
1: I want to I key off of a couple of words you just used, uh, Charles. You, you, you talked about isolation and then you talked about community. Community yeah. is the solution isolation. Mm-hmm. Uh, the mascot, if you would, of the foundation is a bison. His name is actually Redbud. We call him bud for short, but we have this bison and people ask me why the bison and, and I want bison. We've got some property where, where we were attempting to build a, a new campus, and then the oil industry downturn happened, and so that's all kind of on hold, but but at some point in the future, I'm going to get that thing built, and there's going to be bison in the front yard of Kimray, um, which everybody thinks I'm crazy. They say, you know, bison are hard to contain. That's only really true um, in, in one circumstance. Bison are, are unique creatures. They are uh, huge. A male, full-grown male bison weighs about 2,000 pounds, can leap a six-foot fence from a standing position, and can run about 40 miles an hour. So yeah, if they want to go over or through something, they, they probably can. But here's the deal. Bison only need really three things to be content, and then, they're, then then they'll stay wherever they are. The first is obviously their basic needs, right? They need food and water. And so when we got, you know, people first got to North America and started looking around and they saw these huge bison herds moving they were moving to find food they're not migratory animals they just move to to find food so they need food they need their basic needs met then they need safety if they feel threatened which i'm not sure how a bison feels threatened because they have no natural predators in north america except us but you know if they're harassed by wolves or whatever then then they're going to move an, to an area where they feel safe but then probably more importantly than anything else they need community you can't contain a single bison. They will leave and go look for other bison. They, they will not stand to be alone. And as I thought about that, I thought, that sounds a lot like us, doesn't it, Charles? I mean, yeah. basically, we, we need our basic needs met, and a lot of those are physical. We need safety, and we need community, and, and we should get some of that at work, right? I mean, if we're going to be at work for a third of our lives, then, then that's, that should be play, a place where we feel safe and where we have community. The problem with being in leadership is the community piece is often lacking because it is isolating, right? We can't just share everything with everybody around us. We have to be in in the role we're in. And so that's another critical component of the foundation and and the the podcast that we're doing, if it's okay to promote my podcast on your podcast, but the podcast we're doing is Word from the Herd. It's available on all the standard platforms, Word from the Herd. And the reason that that we're talking about a herd is because we want the foundation to be a community for leaders and people in leadership where they can feel cared for and safe. Because so often as leaders, we don't have a place that we can do that. We don't have a place where we're getting uh, the, the kind of community and the camaraderie with other people who, when we talk about our issues, can kind of go, yeah, I know what that feels like because I sit in the same kind of seat you do. And one of the greatest things that I did when I came back from recovery is I got plugged into a group of, of CEOs. It's a small hand-picked group and, and we communicate on a regular basis. But once a year we go on a retreat and there's only, you know, there's some sometimes eight or 10 of us and we go to a national park and we spend the mornings hiking and looking at nature and how beautiful everything is. And then we spend the afternoons and evenings. Basically each one of us gets to kind of unload what's going on in our lives and our leadership, the problems we're having. And then over the next couple of evenings, uh, some number of the rest of the people in the group will will respond to that and encourage us and, and feed into our lives. And, and the only rule is you have to be encouraging. You can tell people the truth, but you have to encourage them with something because leaders don't get a lot of true encouragement, right? They get a lot of pats on the back for your company being successful or profits or third quarter results or whatever, but it's very seldom that we just get in, our souls encouraged somebody to just look us in the eyes and say you're really good at this and 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 i really value the things that i see you you doing those are those are good things for your community or whatever it is and so i would encourage not just leaders but you know if if you want to live your life live your purpose you can't do it alone. We are not designed, we were not created to be alone. We're created to be in community. And so you need to surround yourself with people who are healthy for you. That means they're honest with you, they'll hold you accountable. You need to surround yourself with people that have different viewpoints and, and of different ages and different backgrounds because you can get myopic, right? You can get in a little bubble where everybody around you is just repeating the things that, that you're, you're repeating or you're saying. So you need some diversity in, in the group around you. And, and then you need to be willing to invest in them and, and they need to be willing to invest in you. That's what community does. And, and so I would highly encourage people, uh, you don't have to, to join our group or, or, you know, be a part of what we do. Uh, there's lots and lots of ways we do that. And certainly, Charles, if, you know, even 14 years into recovery, I would suspect that you're still plugged into the recovery community in, in ways that are meaningful to you. I still meet with a recovery group once a week and will for the rest of my life. It's part of how I do life. That's part of my community. It's part of a place that's safe for me and a place that I can get uh, kind of refueled and, and recharged and just having people around that, that can go, I know, I know, what is, I know what you're struggling with. So I would, I would really, really encourage uh, your listeners to, to make that a part of their life in, in some way or another. I
0: don't think I can close any better than that. Um, Thomas Hill, it has been such a pleasure. Again, folks, uh, check out the show notes for links. And uh, I've really enjoyed the conversation. I look forward to seeing what comes next for you.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a lot of fun. And I really appreciate you uh, reading my book. I I don't know how many people have read the book. It can't be a terribly large number. And I tell everybody, keep your expectations low and you won't be disappointed. So I really appreciate (laughs) that you actually read my book and, and that you looked me up and I got this opportunity to talk with you. Just thank you a lot.
0: Cool. Well, it's been really good. I look forward to staying in touch. You've been listening to the Live Your Purpose podcast. I hope you've been inspired by my conversation with today's guest. If you like what you hear, please share with your social networks and subscribe so that you never miss an episode. I'm your host, Charles Gossett, Life Purpose Coach and founder of Full Integration Coaching. To learn more about the life coaching, public speaking, and retreat services that I offer, visit fullintegrationcoaching.com. And you can follow along with me on Facebook and Instagram at Full Integration Coaching. Until next time, remember, you were meant to live on purpose. Start living yours today.